The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business on News Talk. Social media has been uh, intriguing over the last week since the riots in Dublin because of the manner in which information has travelled and the lengths to which information has travelled about what has been going on in Ireland. Um, there's a one man who has been tracking information, misinformation and disinformation and how it uh, travels across social media is David Gilbert. David is a reporter at Wired. Uh, a magazine is probably the wrong term given that Wired is, is predominantly online, but we will use it nonetheless. David, good morning. Good morning, Anton. Uh, David, can we start? Because this is quite a tricky thing to, to get our heads around. Uh, the end result of where we got to was a situation where we had Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson in front of an audience of... 10 million-ish views adding up to about 7 million. So in old-fashioned broadcast media terms, this is a huge audience that the two guys had discussing how the government's uh, forthcoming hate speech bill would be actually a way of legislating against people criticising government policy, which of course is not the case, and uh, talking about how Ireland was, um, in in Tucker Carlson's word, uh, a powder keg and how the government is trying to replace the population with people from the third world. How did we end up in a situation where A, Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon care and B, why they are incentivized to make a show about it? Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to look at <clears throat> how we ended up there. Um, and it all kind of comes down to one or two key figures in the Irish far-right community who have, over the last couple of years, forged links with US far-right figures. Um, central to that, I guess, is a guy called Keith O'Brien, who's from Roscommon. He's known online as Keith Woods. Not sure. No one really seems to know why <clears throat> he changed his name. But over the course of the last couple of years, he has made friends effectively online with a lot of high ranking or important far right figures in the US, including Nick Fuentes, who's the head of the America First movement and crucially Elon Musk. So when all this broke out last Thursday week, um, Elon Musk obviously had to get involved because there's nothing happens on the planet that Elon Musk doesn't want to stick his nose into, even though he knows absolutely nothing about it. So when it did, he turned to this guy, Keith Woods, who's built up a huge following in the far right community by posting you know, very virulently anti-Semitic and racist stuff on Telegram. And what he was saying was that this, the riots in Dublin were just a result of the government ignoring what um, he and all the other people had been saying about immigrants coming into the country. So that led Elon Musk to tweet about it. And then Conor McGregor got involved. And then it quickly filtered out from there to all the other blue check mark guys on Twitter who have willing to pay Elon Musk $8 a month to get their posts boosted on the network. And as a result, then, we've got huge swathes of the US right wing and far right talking about Ireland and typically talking about Ireland in really terms that they they clearly don't know what they're talking about, as you mentioned with Tucker Carlson. Now, explain the Nick Fuentes incentive in this, because Nick Fuentes is the guy who ended up at dinner in Mar-a-Lago with uh, Donald Trump and Donald Trump then sort of had to disavow him when it was made mm. clear the kind of speech that Nick Fuentes is involved in, uh, both online and in video uh, in America. 
What's the advantage to Nick Fuentes to start um, a discourse about Ireland? Um, it's it's the same thing that talk, White Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon were talking about. It. Fuentes has, for the last, I don't know how many years, he's been doing his American First show. Um, he has been pushing this narrative that immigration is effectively the greatest threat to the American people because he believes, like a lot of the rest of them believe, that the American government and governments across the globe are conducting this um, campaign to replace native populations with uh, immigrants, as Tucker Carlson said, people from the third world. So this is a, a kind of a grand conspiracy that's been around for decades. But in recent years, it's been kind of ramped up by figures like Fuentes, who have who who kind of built his reputation on on the idea that he is standing up for the real American man and woman, and he doesn't want people from different countries coming into the country. Um, and it's something that the far right in Ireland have kind of glommed onto as well in the last six months. We've seen a huge uptick in protests and violence around direct provision centres here in Ireland. We saw it even this week with people out in little towns and villages around Ireland, allegations of vigilantism. Um, and so that's why Fuentes is talking about it. He's not talking about it because he cares deeply about Ireland. It's He talks about it like he does any other country in the world because it furthers his goal of making people scared about immigrants. Now, to what extent then does that convert into real problems either in America or in Ireland? Because I think there is a, a tendency to look at that which occurs on social media and say, look, it's tinfoil hattery and some of it is so self-evidently dumb that it is almost not worth justifying with attention. So does it convert into real world harms? No, I think that's the what you spoke about there is the attitude that a lot of people had here in Ireland, especially. And in the US, people pay more attention to the far right, mostly because they have a lot of guns over there. So it's it, it can, you know, be a, a bigger threat. But over here in Ireland, people tended until recent, very recently to view the people in these telegram channels as kooks, as crazy, as you say, as tinfoil hat merchants. But what a number of activists and researchers have been pointing out is that we need to be paying more attention to these people because they are organized, they have huge followings, and the followings that they have are willing to follow orders. We've seen protests and marches, we've seen people at libraries, we've seen um, people willing to travel across the country to go to events outside the Doyle that we saw in 2020 where a noose was hung up. We saw people who are willing to spend cold nights outside direct provision centres just to put fear into the migrants who are living there or scare them away. So these people are willing to take action. We've seen that over the last six months. So when Drew Harris came out in May and said that the far-right problem in Ireland isn't growing, that was a red flag to a lot of people who are tracking these people because for everyone else who's looking at them and who watches these channels daily and sees the kind of rhetoric that's in there, we everyone that was following those knew that's not true. These people are getting more and more um, validated in what they do every single day. And they're, you could see that they were just waiting for something to happen. And that something happened when the man attacked three and stabbed three children outside of school in Dublin last Thursday. 
So it's... As in the response to that, the rioting that we saw was the, the exactly, thing that was going to happen. They, they were waiting for something like that. Within minutes of that event happening or being reported, even before the identity of the attacker was known, they were already asking, was it a foreigner? Was it an immigrant? Now, explain one thing to me in this, David, that I don't, I've never fully been able to understand. In the midst of all of this, you have the uh, owner of one of the most significant social media platforms, that being Elon Musk, who himself has a hundred and something million followers. He has a habit of involving himself in the discourse by replying or retweeting so that it isn't immediately quotable what he has said. But he has waded into a lot of the sort of the far right tropes that are knocking around, including Pizzagate in in recent yeah. uh, days, which is of course that the I'm not I mean, this again sounds like ridiculous tinfoil hattery, but this is the uh, theory that says that senior Democrats are running a pedophile ring out of a pizza joint in Washington D.C. Again, a man showed up with a uh, rifle at this pizza joint because of it. But what's the incentive for Musk to be involved in all this? Because surely he has other fish to fry with SpaceX and with Tesla and surely Twitter can be more profitable without him doing this kind of uh, fermenting of unrest. Yeah, it's the it's the forty four billion dollar question, Anton. I think because no one, as far as I can see, has answered that question. Um, Musk bought the platform effectively because he was kind of. Uh, it seemed that he was just angry because certain people had been banned from the platform, or he wasn't getting the type of. Like one of the big issues he had before he bought Twitter was saying that he was shadow banned, that his interactions had gone down. So he felt that there was some secret hand at Twitter at the time who were like damping down his posts, even though he had a huge amount of followings, which is completely ridiculous. But it seems like when I think back on it, I think that is the key point of why he spent so much money on Twitter and then has spent a year burning it to the ground because he is just so insecure that he needs he needs to kind of have the reflected glow from people who just will follow him and believe him no matter what he said and that's the blue tick brigade that's the people who are willing to pay 8 dollars a month for a product that is on, by all measures, worse than it was when he bought the company. Now, the other and side of this, people, because you say the $44 billion question is what, what incentivizes him to, to steer the platform the way that he does. The other question then is, what can you do to counteract it? Because if we had a situation where there was a broadcaster or a publisher with 100 million viewership or readership, there would be regulation requiring balance, objectivity, some form of complaints process, all of that kind of stuff. There is none of that for uh, social media, nor does there seem to be a prospect of it. No, and Helen McEntee again in the Dial this week was talking about how Meta, Facebook and Instagram were, were better at responding and Twitter wasn't. And therefore they were, you know, the government was going to take action. I, like the government and governments across the world have been trying to take action against social media for a long time. And it's just not, it's just not working um, the EU and Ireland especially is probably the most, the ones that have done most to try and stop the spread of this stuff. But it just hasn't worked. We still see that like Elon Musk, because it's a private company and he does what he wants. And we've seen the rise of disinformation, and hate speech on his platform go through the roof over the last 12 months. And yet there's nothing that anyone can do about it. And as you said, there's always people willing to talk about doing more. And in the US, they've had this conversation about Section 230 for years and absolutely nothing has changed in real terms. And so 
it's it's very unlikely that in the near term the Irish government or any other government is going to be able to put in place legislation that will be effective enough to stop what's happening on Twitter at the moment. Can I ask about, and again, it, it's strange when you when you formulate questions along the lines of the one I'm about to ask, you almost feel ridiculous for asking, it, but <laughs> yeah. the, the evidence is there of it. What about state actors? We saw the, the um, Russian involvement with Brexit. We saw the Russian involvement in the 2016 election. Now, that is not to suggest direct meddling at ballot boxes, but it is to suggest that there is very good evidence of bot armies and of, of a, an influencing of the discourse to create discord. Is that still occurring? Absolutely, on a, on a massive scale. I, I was speaking to researchers this week who track, it's called Doppelganger, which is a, a known influence operation that has been linked to the Kremlin. And they, oh, I don't know if you remember, like during the summer, they were, what they did is they created fake copies of Le Monde and Le Parisien in France, and they put up stories against Ukraine and pro-Russia. That group is currently conducting a uh, campaign using networks of hundreds of thousands of fake Facebook accounts plus Twitter accounts that are known Twitter accounts that are a part of this campaign and they're doing it with impunity and those pages will be taken down and tens of thousands of others will come up. And presumably this is facilitated by AI because the capacity to design and create that kind of material is much easier now. To an extent, it's going to get worse. AI isn't necessarily being used at the moment. If you actually look at how they create the Facebook accounts, it's automated. But what they do is they pick three different um, descriptors. So like a name, an adjective and a a letter or a color. And they just iterate that tens, hundreds of thousands of times. And that can be done with a very rudimentary script. It doesn't need AI. Now, you can go in a level further and you can get generative AI to create individual uh, pictures that have never been created before and are very hard to identify. And you can, what's really potentially troubling, I think, is rather than the image or the video AI stuff is the text AI, because that can create tens, hundreds, thousands of iterations of the same message, all tailored specifically to individual voters during an election or just to individuals online. And of course, Steve Bannon has made clear that it was his express tactic pre-2016 to try to plant using Breitbart and other websites that kind of of, um, information for it to be picked up then in mainstream media and effectively washed into the general discourse. Can I ask one final question, David, in in all of this? What's in it for the people who are involved? What's what's the, the validation that people get from being part of the the community of the disenfranchised? Well, if it if you think back to, to, I always go back in Ireland, especially to COVID, and when people were locked in their houses, this is when it really took off in Ireland and a lot of other countries. People couldn't meet other people in real life, and so they turned to the internet. They went to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and it kind of funneled them eventually to Telegram channels and groups where these people met and spread conspiracies about COVID, about the vaccines, about lockdowns. Those communities were, if you were monitoring at the time, were hugely active. And when you looked at the conversations, it wasn't always about COVID. It wasn't about vaccines. It was just about general life. And people felt that communication, felt that connection with other people that they couldn't get in real life because they were stuck in their house. Fast forward a couple of years and those, well, those accounts or 
groups are not as active as they were maybe in the heyday of lockdowns, they're still active and people still have this sense of community, this sense of belonging. And what's key in so many conspiracy and far-right groups is that they feel that they're in, they have the knowledge and understanding that the general public don't have. And that's a shared thing. And it's hugely powerful in terms of keeping people together and keeping people kind of locked in this bubble where they feel as if they're the righteous ones and they're doing what's right for Ireland. And therefore, no matter what they do, it's justified because they've seen the evidence or they've done their research. So I think that's what's in it for them is that this sense of community, this sense of belonging, especially in a world where we're kind of becoming increasingly, um, you know, people feel as if uh, socialising isn't as as important as it was before. And maybe people are doing remote working so they don't have colleagues in an office. So this sense of community that they get in these groups is just hugely important for people and it makes them feel warm and makes them feel welcome. Okay. And that's really hard thing to, to break. David, really appreciate your time this morning. That's David Gilbert. He's a reporter at Wired. And if you want to follow any of his reporting, you can obviously follow him at Wired on uh, Twitter or you can also get him at Dahi Gilbert. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday. With Nifty Business. Saturday morning at nine. On News Talk.